The Holy Gospel for this Sunday in Lent comes from John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus loves a good dinner party. He shows up at them all the time, at wedding receptions, and makes the best wine flow like water. He accepts invitations from tax collectors and feasts with them, even though everyone is whispering about it behind his back. He takes five loaves of bread and a couple of fish and makes it into a meal for thousands with baskets of leftovers. He even, after his own resurrection, makes a breakfast of grilled fish for his disciples, if for no other reason than to eat the fish in front of them and prove that he is not a ghost. So by all rights, today's dinner party, the one we read about in the gospel, should be one of the best. He is there to celebrate with his dear friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. Because just a short time before, Lazarus had died, and Mary and Martha were broken by their grief. You might remember some of the story that when Jesus arrived at their house, having heard that Lazarus was ill and weeps with them, both the sisters rush out immediately to ask why he didn't show up earlier, why he hadn't prevented this awful thing from happening to their brother. As is typical, Jesus rarely offers an explanation for something in the past, and he doesn't do it here. Instead, he walks right up to Lazarus's tomb and tells everyone there to roll back the stone. And then he stands in front of the entrance to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, as if this is the kind of thing you do at the cemetery all the time, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus does, still wrapped in his own burial shroud and undoubtedly very surprised by what has happened to him. Unbind him and let him go, says Jesus. So what kind of dinner party do you give for the guy who just raised your brother from the dead? Probably a pretty good one. No expense spared, every nice dish pulled out of the china cabinet, and this guy makes good wine, so you should probably bring out your best. Now, chances are Mary and Martha and Lazarus were not wealthy. Probably none of Jesus' closest friends or disciples were. 
But money doesn't really make a party beautiful. Love does. And that they have in abundance. Toward the end, as things are winding down, Mary gets up from her spot. She takes a pound, which is a fair amount, of costly perfume. And she breaks it open onto Jesus' feet. Now remember that just a few days before, standing at the tomb and weeping, the tomb of her brother, Mary had heard her sister say to Jesus, Be careful rolling back that stone. There will be a smell. Our brother's been dead four days. But now it's the smell of the perfume, that sweet, earthy scent that fills the party with the fragrance of resurrection. You wonder if maybe this is the moment Jesus will come back to in a few days when it's time to say goodbye to his own disciples. Maybe Mary is the one who shows him the holy and vulnerable beauty of washing someone's feet as a sign of love. At any rate, she anoints his feet with the oil and she dries them with her hair. It's an almost unbearably intimate thing to watch. And you imagine that the room is perfectly silent as she does it. And then there's a voice. Judas. Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii, almost a year's wages, and the money given to the poor? Well, that's awkward. All of a sudden, the extravagant, joyful, exuberant dinner party comes to a crashing halt. The guests look around at each other and wonder how to answer that question. Mary, still wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, feels a pain in her heart as she wonders whether she has been foolish instead of generous. Slowly, Judas's question sucks every molecule of air out of the room, and everyone is wondering the same thing. Should we have done that instead? Did we just waste all that money? Did we just make a huge mistake? Now, for those of us reading the story, the gospel is quick to give us reason not to believe Judas. We are led into a secret that the people at the dinner party don't know yet, which is that Judas isn't actually interested in the well-being of the poor. He is interested in the well-being of his pocketbook. And while he isn't the first person to use charity as an excuse to line his own pockets, he's also not the last. So, right off the bat, you and I know we don't have to believe Judas. Except that most of us, someplace deep down in our hearts, wonder if maybe even a bad guy can't have a good point once in a while. Wouldn't selling something that is technically unnecessary, the perfume, and using it for a practical purpose feed the hungry, clothe the naked, get, find a home for someone who doesn't have one. Wouldn't that be better? Uh, there's only so much to work with here. Even Jesus seems to acknowledge the complexity and the sort of permanence of the problem. 
He tells everybody to leave Mary alone, but then he seems to announce that this is a problem that's never going to go away. Doesn't he sound maybe a little too resigned to that, even a little dismissive? There will always be the poor among you, but you won't always have me. So one dinner party and two very different (coughs) stories happening. Is Mary's act one of love and generosity or wasteful indulgence? Is Judas's question about personal gain or is it a logical, practical objection? Is Jesus defending Mary or is he dismissing the poor? Which of these versions do we believe and why? Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann wrote some years ago that the Bible tells us two stories, basically, over and over and over again in a million different ways. A story of abundance and a story of scarcity. Everything starts over here with abundance. Creation is just a vision, a liturgy of more and more, and it's good and good and very good. Everything shows up as a gift from a God who just has to speak and things come into being. It's so good that you can even take a break at the end of it. There's so much of it. Everything is so overrun with fruitfulness that Brueggemann says, God says, I got to take a break from this. I have to get out of the office. And then blessing shows up in the stories over and over again. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and their children are to become a blessing for the whole world. They're to have offspring like the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. Blessing and abundance and faith are all the way through the story in Genesis until chapter 47, almost to the end. We hear that there will be a famine in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh has dreamt this. And so he gets organized to administer and control and monopolize the food supply. He will be prepared. As Brueggemann says, Pharaoh introduces the principle of scarcity, there's not enough, into the world economy for the first time. For the first time in the Bible, somebody says, there isn't enough, we'd better get everything. There isn't enough. We'd better get everything. I doubt that Pharaoh and Judas are actually related by blood, but they certainly seem to be related by belief. They're both followers of that, the theology, the myth of scarcity. The idea that there isn't enough to go around, so you better get everything you can and be careful with it once you've got it. Follow that line of thinking, and pretty soon our neighbors are competitors for the same limited pile of resources. And we begin to look at each other with suspicious eyes. Are you here to take away what is rightfully mine? We wonder. It would be nice to dismiss Judas' question, except that you and I have been brought up to believe the same thing. Just like him, we've been taught that 
The world's resources are a, prize, are a prizes in a zero-sum game. There isn't enough of them, and you'd better get busy. By extension, those of us who don't have enough resources become objects of pity at best, or scorn. What's wrong with them, we think? How come they can't keep up like I can? And then Jesus says, you always have the poor with you. Which, if we are not careful, sounds like and Jesus buying into that same idea of scarcity. There isn't enough. Sorry about it. This is a problem that can't be solved. Sure, you can do individual acts of kindness, but even Jesus says that poverty is an inescapable reality of human life. Doesn't he? I learned anew again this week how many funny things there are about ancient Greek. Sometimes it's hard to know exactly how to move the meaning of words from one century to another and one language to another. So it turns out that you will have the poor with you always can also be translated, have the poor among you always. Or maybe better, keep the poor among you always. In other words, what Jesus is saying is maybe not a description of endless cycles of poverty. Well, nothing you can do about it. The poor will always be here. But instead, a command about what you and I who follow this Jesus are supposed to do. Keep the poor close to you, with you, among you, together. I won't always be here, so keep the poor among you. Because once Jesus walks out of his own tomb and into eternal life, those among us who are poor are as close as we're ever going to get to him again. Nothing changes us like being close to something or someone we can so easily think of as a generic problem, an issue. So it's easy to dismiss people who are homeless as addicts or scammers gaming the system, irresponsible people who are careless with whatever they got, until... We are close to one another, and we build relationships with folks who are homeless, and we discover there's about one safety net between us and them. We're not so different after all. That's happened every time we've hosted Tent City in this congregation. And that was the underlying conviction of our Lenten journey together, that it's easy to talk about someone of another faith tradition as as an extremist or violent or dangerous or odd. Until we sit next to each other, we are close to each other, we are among each other in this room or at a dinner table, and we realize we're not the same, but we're all making our way toward a God of justice and compassion and mercy. 
Every time we're tempted to talk about an issue or a problem or those people, whoever they are, we too are buying into Judas's version of this story. There's not enough. They're your competitors. You better take what you've got and be careful with it. And so Jesus stands up at the last dinner party he ever gave, and he takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he gives it away for free. And he tells us that every time we do that, anywhere, he'll show up. And then he takes a cup, one cup of wine, and he manages to give it to the entire world. And not once does he tell us to be careful with it and not waste it on the wrong people. You know who was at that dinner, too? Judas. And all of a sudden, his objection sounds kind of foolish. A false choice. It isn't about choosing how to spend our limited resources. This is a party thrown by a God who has given this world abundance, more than enough once we learn to let some of it out of our clenched fists. And you know who can teach us that? The Jesus who shows up among those who are poor. And he never gives up. So why then would we? Amen.